Hello, Happy New Year and welcome to the Viva Magazine podcast. If you've made it your 2024 resolution to stay abreast of travel trends and hot cultural happenings, I, Johnny Ensel, am here to make sure you stick to it. This month we'll be hearing why Negril in Jamaica is the new wellness capital of the Caribbean, finding out how a circus-obsessed entrepreneur is turning a small Californian town into one giant big top, and considering the torso of one Sylvester Stallone, among much else in our review of the latest film and TV releases. Oh, and listen out for a little bit of this. He'll be carrying all the rest of the cast to their final mission on his back, I imagine. On his epic <laughs> prow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's January, which is reason for optimism because we have a whole load of brand new stuff to talk about in our Essential Red Hot segment. And for this, we're joined by Vera editor Jessica Prupas, who's going to share her trending picks from the worlds of travel, culture, food and drink. Hello, Jess. Hello. Uh, how are you feeling about the new year? I still thought it was December, so <laughs> surprised. <laughs> so you, it kind of crept up on you, 2024. Oh, yeah, as they always do. Every year passes <laughs> in a haze. Yeah, the earth spins around the sun. When will it end? <laughs> when will it end? Well, um, maybe you can make us feel positive about 2024 with some inspiring picks. What would you like to start with? Accidentally, Wes Anderson. Mm, yeah, Wes Anderson, the famous indie film director. And wh- why is what is accidental about Wes Anderson? Well, there's nothing accidental about Wes Anderson's aesthetic, but there is an Instagram dedicated to travel photos that sort of accidentally look like Wes Anderson film stills. Yes, yeah. So he's quite famous for using very controlled color palettes and and really setting up every one of his shots uh, to to look absolutely pristine. Mm -hmm. And so this this Instagram account is kind of real life examples of that kind of thing. Yeah, it's like Wes Anderson travel porn, Um, you know, very symmetrical photos, Mm. very colorful. The man loves symmetry and color. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a user generated account, but it's run by this husband and wife duo based in Brooklyn. And it's just absolutely exploded in popularity the last few years. Uh, And now there is an exhibition in London in South Kensington, the museum district. Uh, dedicated to the Instagram account and featuring photos plucked from the account curated just for this exhibition. Mm. I mean, I've I've noticed on on Instagram in general a bit of a trend in kind of Anderson-esque, you know, styles of photography. Do you think there's such a thing as Wes Anderson tourism? You know, people going to places because they look like Wes Anderson film sets? Yeah, it could be. Like the Swiss Alps. What else is Wes Anderson-y as a destination? Well, I think anything that's pastel. Yeah, big on pastels. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like New York is a kind of setting for some of his films. But yeah, I've, I've basically seen people, they seem to seek out like any sort of symmetrical buildings and standing in front <laughs> of them with a sort of like po-faced expression. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. You do you do look like you're in a Wes Anderson film. Congratulations. <laughs> so the Wes Anderson t- grand tour of the world is just looking at symmetrical buildings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking at looking at symmetrical buildings with a blank expression. I mean that is that is a lot of what Wes Anderson films <laughs> are all about. <laughs> We've cracked it. <laughs> 
We've cracked it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, if you want even more Wes Anderson in your life, you can go to this exhibition in, where was it again, Jess? It's in South Kensington in London and it goes until mid-February. So you have some time to catch it. Got some time. Okay, great. So what's next, please, Jess? The Hala Lobster Roll at Misha, New York. Mm, Okay. Why is this a delicious highlight? Uh, Well, Misha is a new restaurant in the city in Manhattan, uh, Midtown. It's run by this guy, Alex Stupak, who is a chef and the owner of the Empeon Restaurant Group, which is a really popular Mexican-American restaurant group in the city. There's a lot of hype around this restaurant because it's been six years since Stupak opened a restaurant. Um, So there's been a lot of eyes on Misha and it's a hard left turn from his other restaurants because this one is just like arch American. Uh, He calls it new American food. And it's basically just like everything that's good about the U.S. and specifically New York food wise, uh, just in one menu. Mm. Uh, So they became famous for this uh, this eight inch hot dog Mm. that costs twenty nine dollars and comes with five condiments. I would expect five (laughs) at least minimum five at the very least. Um, So this was popular on Instagram, TikTok, all the usual suspects. And then, you know, after a dish gets popular on TikTok, people were flooding, Mm. flooding in. Is it necessary that everyone knows it's an eight inch hot dog? It feels (laughs) like it's just showing off a bit. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of kind of rude. Yeah. Okay. well, you know, all right for some. And (laughs) what about um, what about this lobster roll then? What's that? What's that all about? So you've got your classic New England lobster roll but it's sandwiched in a challah bread loaf, like a submarine style challah roll. Yeah, okay. So it's like super rich and buttery. Mm, yeah. And what, what else is on the menu? Oh, they've got, you know, matzo ball soup. They've got banh mi. Um, they've got a lot of New York classics mixed with new American classics. Yeah, okay. All right. So I, I sort of get the concept. It's basically like distilling and, and refining New York food into a menu of all the greatest hits. Mm-hmm. Why can't you have banh mi on the same menu as matzo ball soup? I don't know. I'm not against it. No, certainly not. Who am I to hold back progress? <laughs> yeah, this is progress. Yeah. Okay, wicked. Thank you, Jess. And uh, what's next? Movies about movie makers. Mm, okay, yeah. I feel like we've been seeing a lot of this in cinema. But what? which movie makers in particular? So Jackie Chan, remember him? Yeah, yeah. Famous movie maker himself. So in his new film, Ride On, he plays a former stuntman who needs to protect his stunt horse from debt collectors. Mm. So it's, you know, it's your classic Jackie Chan fare, but he plays a stuntman, which is what he is in a respect. Yeah. Uh, Then Fall Guy, that's coming out this year. That's with Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt. He plays a former stuntman who needs to rescue the star of a film when they go missing. And again, the protagonist is a stuntman, but these two films are really glorifying the worker bees behind the scenes. Mm. I mean... I feel like we've had lots of movies about film directors. Mm. You know, film directors are like, what can I make a movie about? Maybe I'll make a movie about myself. <laughs> with, you know, like The Fablemans and things like that. Steven, Steven Spielberg's biopic. So this is, now we're saying, okay, who else can we make a movie about? What about you, stunt people? Yeah, I mean, you saw this in Nope. So the protagonists in Nope were, you know, horse wranglers. And then a cinematographer also swooped in. Babylon, the protagonist was like a lowly crew member working in the 1920s. You know, Mm. these people work hard. Some might say harder than the stars. (laughs) 
of the films. Yeah, okay, yeah. So in this culture of recognising behind-the-scenes film workers with the recent strikes, you know, films themselves are recognising the contribution of these people. Yeah, they're pro-labour films, (laughs) and we love it. Yeah, all right. What's next up, please, Jess? Celebrities play fighting. Mm, Okay, who's play fighting? Um, Sylvester Stallone, he met the Pope recently, and um, Mm. he threw some playful jabs at him. <laughs> mean. <laughs> pretty bold. Yeah, okay. It is pretty bold. And what? how did the Pope take it? Apparently the Pope is a big uh, Stallone fan, so he was fine with it. Mm, okay. I mean, what do you think would happen if you actually punched the Pope? <laughs> would you go to Catholic jail? <laughs> I mean, you'd be excommunicated for sure, I think. What if you're a um, heathen? Like, what if you're, what if you're not Catholic? <laughs> is that what? <laughs> Is that is that what we're known as, as non-Catholics, heathens? Yeah, yeah, heathens. I still think there'd be consequences. <laughs> so Sylvester Stallone almost slapped the Pope, and uh, who else <laughs> is doing this sort of thing? Yeah, let's get that rumor going. Um, Idris yeah. Elba uh, spent a year studying kickboxing for a role, and then he tried to keep it up after, but his wife and his mother said, stop that nonsense. <laughs> sure yeah i mean he's he's already got enough hobbies i know he's a dj and he owns a wine bar what is he a dj he's a d he's like a big name dj and he owns a wine bar so what he's doing getting into kickboxing i don't know yeah i mean men like to muck around don't they with this sort of thing if you were Sylvester Stallone or similar basically what you're sort of going around every day being like hey we're friends but i could beat you up is that the basis of all male friendship? That's the basis of all male friendship. Just everybody knowing where they are in the pecking order. <laughs> Just like a low, seething violence. <laughs> yeah, like gorillas. You know, he's basically <laughs> Sylvester Stallone is going to the Pope. Hey, you're the Pope, but I could beat you up. <laughs> Makes sense. And then the Pope knows, but the Pope feels comfortable knowing he's the beater. <laughs> uh, and and all, is, all is well with the world. Wow. We are... Truly, just a step beyond. You're through the looking glass of male relationships. Here, <laughs> Jess. I want, I want none uh, of it. Okay, what else have you got for us, Jess? Um, mezcal Negronis. Oh, yeah. Mezcal. It's like tequila, but mm, tastes worse. <laughs> that's that's don't my let, tagline. Don't let the mezcal heads hear you say that. <laughs> yeah, I'll have big mezcal uh, cancelling me. Okay, yeah, what's what's Mezcal doing these days? So, the Mezcal Negroni. I love a Negroni, but sometimes you just want to mix it up. You want to swap gin for Mezcal. Um, it gives it a kind of smokier taste. And yeah, it was popularized in the U.S. by this bar called Maya Huel, which is a Mezcaleria in New York. Uh, and they serve a Coco Negroni. So it's got Coconut fat washed, um, Akul Mezcal, Chinzano Rosso, and Pims. So yeah, like a nice, intriguing blend intriguing. there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can also try it at Trade Boston. Uh, they've got their signature Trade Negroni, which has Sam Cosme Mezcal, Campari, and House Vermouth. Um, and at the new Capri Club in LA, they've got their own version, which they call a white Negroni that's got both gin and mezcal, Amaro Angelino, Bitters, and Bianco Vermouth. Okay. All right. So mezcal Negronis, it's a thing. <laughs> in short, yeah. I think it is. Uh, okay, and what's your final pick, please, Jess? Um, Asseline's Barbie. Mm, okay, As- Asseline is the um, 
publishing house and delightful bookshop in London. Ah, I didn't know they had a brick and mortar location. Oh yeah, it's wonderful. It's it's one of the most beautiful places in the city. Yeah, it's a oh, real.、Wow. Uh, You know, if you want to go and 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 have a little quiet moment, yeah, it's it's gorgeous. And they've got a Barbie book, yes. They have got a Barbie book. So the Barbie mania of the summer shows no sign of abating,、mm-hmm. and Asuline is riding that wave. It is apparently the 65th anniversary of Barbie this year. So the book really takes you through the history of the doll from 1959 to today. They've got never before seen imagery in the book. It's just basically like a 340 page history of Barbie, her fashion over、mm-hmm. the years, how she intersects with pop culture, and that's it really. It's written by Susan Shapiro. She's an author and journalist. So it's kind of like low-key intellectual Barbie, but still very pink. I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, pink can be intellectual. Yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry pink. <laughs> Apologize to pink. I mean, are they going to bring out a kind of pensionable Barbie for the 65th anniversary of Barbie? <laughs> <laughs> Florida Barbie. Yeah, Florida Barbie. Yeah,、um, <laughs> that's a good idea. I think at her local bowls club in crisp whites. Yeah, people would go crazy for that. <laughs>、uh, well, thank you for that, Jess. I feel a lot better about the year in prospect, and、um, I'm going to go and assert my physical dominance over a weaker male,、uh, <laughs> just to keep that good feeling going. <laughs> Don't forget to sniff his butt as well. <laughs> of course, I will. <laughs> forget? How could I? Absolutely. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy. Thanks for that top tip, Jess. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> Negril is famous for being one of the most beautiful parts of Jamaica, and the place where the island's true culture is kept alive. Its traditionally relaxed atmosphere makes it the perfect place for wellness, and there's an increasing number of resorts offering just that. Uh, Nick Davis is a Jamaica-based writer and broadcaster who knows all about it, and we'll see if we can get him on the phone now. Hey, Johnny, how are you doing? Hey, Nick, very good, thanks.、Uh, how are you? Where are you? Negril.、Uh, <laughs> that's the assignment for today, so that's where I ended up. It's always been like my second home for the time I've been in Jamaica. My parents are actually Jamaican,、mm-hmm. and so. I was always wanting to connect with the Jamaica they spoke about. This sort of very laid back, chilled, you know, very different to the hustle and bustle you get when you think of somewhere like Kingston. Yeah. And trust me, this part of the West Coast, this west side of the island, is exactly that.、Mm. Famous for beautiful sunsets, wonderful beach walks, but also now increasingly, this sense of well-being. Kind of floats over the whole sort of western side of the island.、Mm. And why is that the case? You know, why does this part of Jamaica? Why is it kind of preserved that atmosphere? The main reason is because of the history. I mean, this part of the island, going way, way back, was wonderful beaches, but literally. You couldn't see it from the road,、mm. <laughs> so it missed out on a lot of the commercialisation which happened until actually quite late, up until the sort of late sixties, early seventies. So it had become known, especially during the hippie era, as being this sort of hangout for musicians who'd kind of wash up or were washed up,、uh, or for Rastafarians were here,、yeah. and that was about it. But eventually. 
because of hippies coming down, people outside of, of even the capital started to hear about this wonderful, almost desolate, but beautiful beached part of the island. And so you suddenly found more and more people coming. One of the key people, Johnny, who was responsible for the development was a guy who was a former prime minister. At that point, he was like development minister, a guy called Edisiaga. And he, he realised that this was a great area for development, for mass market tourism, but he wanted to keep that low-key vibe. So mm. when they were developing it, they basically made a rule that you couldn't go higher than the tallest palm tree. And because of that, you had this very low density tourism which has kind of retained that feel to this day obviously wellness has come to be part of most of our lives in, in sort of some respect how does that kind of intersect with this history and this atmosphere anywhere that calls itself the capital of casual is definitely going to be a place for people to come for wellness retreats um yeah. and that's what's happened uh, to say the least so because especially i mentioned earlier on there was a lot of rastafari who settled in the area it's become a focal point for farm to table type tours mm. people coming to learn about how to cook in a way which is idle idle food in regards to rastafari no salt no meat very much almost like a, a, a stripped back vegan diet mm. very popular at the moment so you can go to places like Zimbali Retreats, which is run by a Rastafari couple, and they will teach you how to cook in traditional Rastafari ways. They'll teach you how to make the, the cooking, which is part of their belief system. And as such, will also teach you some of the other Jamaican specialities, but in a way which is going to be better for you. Uh, it's become a, a retreat central for many reasons. Massages, mm. literally just down the road from here. There's a place on the West End where you can get a massage on the coral reefs which sort of surround that West End part of, of the actual town itself. Trust me, when you're in Tingala's retreats and you've got all of that going on, it's just a wonderful, wonderful little vibe. Oh, it sounds spectacular. And, and possibly kind of more authentic than other wellness experiences out there, would you say? Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, wellness is a thing. Mm. People see it as a way of being able to, to cash in. It's a new market. But I think what's special about this particular part of Jamaica and Jamaica as a whole is people want to be real and they can spot the fake. And I think as people are becoming more and more clued in, you know, people understand intentionality. And here in Jamaica, that's a really important thing. If the locals don't get it, also the visitors won't get it either. All of these places are very much frequented by people who live on the island. Yes. So yes, you will get tourists, but you will also get people who are coming there for that really authentic experience. That magic which you get in the West End, that magic which you get on Seven Mile Beach, you're not going to find it anywhere else. It isn't a manufactured authenticity, it's the real deal. Well, I mean, that's the dream for any tourist, isn't it? To have an experience without other tourists. <laughs> without without lots of them, anyway. Without lots of them, yeah. You've got to keep you going somehow. But yeah, no, totally, Johnny. Um, okay, well, show us around a little bit. You know, where are the hot spots? What are the beaches? What are the restaurants? One of my favourite places for food and relaxation is a place called Rock House. Uh, it's on the cliffs. It's got beach 
Long Beach, Seven Mile Beach, as the name suggests, and then you go up to the West End, and, and it's and when I say go up, I mean it's a far end of town, but it's sort of following the volcanic cliffside, going all the way up. Rock House is built on the rocks. It's this wonderful cut stone property. The food there is amazing. They've got a restaurant called Pushka, uh, which just serves really great Jamaican fare. But for me, it's also about the wellness elements. Mm. Here in Jamaica, uh, and I'm not sure whether or not this is going into PG territory, Johnny, but um, (laughs) one of the things which has become very, very popular is the fact that you can do experiences which are based on plant medicine. Yeah, yeah. Um, And some of those would be frowned on in the UK and in some of the territories, but you can actually go on uh, psilocybin retreats here in Jamaica, which is where people take, uh, with guidance, uh, small amounts of microdose magic mushrooms, and they go on these journeys. And these journeys are, as I said, guided. It gives people a chance to be able to access other parts uh, of their minds, which they may not have done. It really gives them a guided experience a safe experience well the health benefits of uh, you know the mental health benefits of psilocybin is something that's been looked into in in kind of clinical terms in the uk quite strongly at the moment so ahead of the curve in in that sense absolutely and you're seeing lots of people coming to jamaica specifically for these sorts of meditation sessions because of the fact that it's something which is at the moment just in trials in many other parts of the world and and people are looking towards a a period where this will become uh, legalized and be part of sort of healthcare programs around the world but in the meantime jamaica is a place where this is happening day in day out Combining that with sort of sound bowls and, and other, other meditative treatments works really, really well. And what about food and drink? What are you going to eat and, uh, and drink while you're there? Oh, man. One of my favourite places is a bit off the beaten track. It's uh, called Pelican Bar. Imagine you jump on a boat, you cruise out in, let's say, one of those catamarans. Probably not the booze cruise catamaran. I'm not sure, Johnny. Maybe I'm jumping ahead too much in terms of getting to know you but you reach a sandbar on this sandbar is a bar pelican bar which is literally in the caribbean sea there's nobody but you a few good friends well depends on whether or not you went on that booze cruise and literally the caribbean sea in front of you the food is fantastic freshly caught it was opened by a guy called floyd in the early 2000s who realized he wanted a bar he saw this sandbar literally built it with bits of driftwood it's been destroyed a number of times i'm going to be absolutely truthful with you by hurricanes and things like that but he keeps on rebuilding it it keeps on getting bigger it keeps on getting better and it's just i literally think it's one of the best places you can relax with a red stripe in the world well thank goodness for floyd and his determination (laughs) so after a wild night at uh, floyd's place what do you recommend for a little bit of um r&r I like how you did that because that's going to link perfectly into the next place I'm going to mention, which is Raha's Retreat. Do you, do you see what we did there? Oh, I do. Inadvertently, I... R and yeah, R. Yeah. Raha's Retreat. There's something really special about being in these wonderful green hills which surround the actual town. It just relieves the stress. So what I like to do is kind of take a nature bath. It's a term my wife used to describe it. It's when you sort of walk in the greenness, you sort of soak it in, let your lungs take in the the sort of nature which is surrounding you. This place 
Raha's retreat is exactly that. 10 miles from the hustle and bustle, but you've got all the healing art therapies like Reiki, you've got dance and drum and music workshops. It's a tranquility, it's a piece of this location in particular, which I think is just amazing. It's such a good meditation spot. Another place which I would just like to quickly mention, the Cliff, Cliff Hotel. Uh, it's got amazing uh, spas which are on the oceanfront. Really good place to be able to relax. I dare you, Johnny, to manage to stay awake during one of their 45-minute massages. I mean, like, it's just the hardest thing possible because you've got the sounds of the lapping water. You've got, like, just really perfect expert massage going on it's a perfect place to de-stress i mean i I absolutely love to fall asleep while somebody gently palpates my body that's my (laughs) that's my dream scenario Um, (laughs) also everyone's always saying how much my aura stinks so if anybody needs a nature bath it's me that that is a very polite way of saying stinky if there is a place actually which you might also want to try mayfield falls it's like this really amazing natural jacuzzi Mm -hmm. so literally it's like a river walk and as you go through it's got like loads of cascades going through one of them is called the washing machine the washing machine literally hits you from every side with water cascading down when you go through it you'll understand where it gets its name from (laughs) i can only aspire to that level of purity (laughs) in my (laughs) in my like dirty metropolitan lifestyle you know well, look, that was that was eye-opening in many senses, and um, I can't wait to uh, I, can't, I can't wait to join you out there on the uh, on the sandbar. Thank you very much, Nick. Absolute pleasure, Johnny. Take care. It's always exciting when the circus comes to town, but what if the circus was the town? That's the dream of big-thinking producer Ross Mollison, who recently dropped $2.5 million to acquire the town of Nipton in the Mojave Desert. In the mother of all rebrands, his plan is to turn Nipton into Circus Town, part HQ for his Spiegel World Circus Troupe, part living theatrical experience replete with hotels and glitzy restaurants. But how did this audacious vision come to be, and how does he plan to pull it off? Here's Ross to tell us more. Hi, I'm Russ Mollison, and I'm the impresario extraordinaire for Spiegel World, and we have shows in Las Vegas and Atlantic City. The reason I'm so in love with the circus is in a large part because I grew up around people who were enormous enthusiasts who took me to the circus all the time. So when you're a five-year-old and you go to the Moscow Circus in Australia, it really has an enormous impact. And I just have always felt I wanted to be part of that. The reason that I think I fell in love with the Moscow City Circus was more than just the acts and the show itself, but it was the entire environment, I think. Just going backstage uh, with my friends who knew everybody and 
meeting the clowns and meeting the managers of the circus and touring how they lived. It was just an extraordinary experience. The reason that we bought Circus Town was because we were looking for a home for the circus and we weren't, we weren't just looking for a home for the circus for the next five or ten years. We wanted a home for the circus that could last hundreds of years, potentially. We want something where we can actually go and get away and rehearse and create new work and go for weekends or go for a month. And then Nipton came up for sale and we'd been there actually on a on retreat with our management team. And one of our executives said, hey, this is for sale. This could be incredible for us. We went out and had a look at it again and thought about it, imagined it, and uh, went ahead and bought it. In terms of how far we are along in developing Circus Town, we've done a master plan for the whole environment. Already we've rebuilt the pond, which is 100 feet wide and 25 feet deep, which actually allows us to invite people out during the summer and make it an incredible place to go because, you know, it's nothing better than going out and swimming in the pond three or four times a day. And we've started getting rid of all the garbage and it's amazing how much garbage there is in the desert. So far, we've taken out 250 tons of rubbish and we're getting ready at the start of the new year to start renovating the buildings. We'll be starting first. We have a five-room hotel we have a general store and a restaurant. Uh, they'll be the first three major structures we do. And then we're also building Spartan Imperial Mansions, which are 70-year-old caravans that we've acquired that are really, really beautiful, but very run down. And we're turning that into luxury accommodation as well. So we're hoping we have about 15 rooms at the hotel in all. Sometimes we'll be using it for our own purposes when we go out there with a group of artists to create a new act. And sometimes we'll make them available to the public to come and stay. We've never run a hotel. We've never run accommodation before as part of our business. But in terms of getting into operating accommodation for people to come and stay, we really want it to be tiny, especially for the first thing we do. Because part of what Spiegel World is about is being small. And our shows are smaller than many of our um, fellow circus producers, and just because we want to be close to our audiences and we want them to have a really, really fun uh, and extreme time. In terms of what we're planning for the future, we want something which will be changing day by day, month by month, season by season. We want to be running a small annual festival out there with I mean, three or four small venues where we put small shows in and we might in fact have the hotel filled with guests and everybody else staying in tents or uh, other accommodation we'll be doing shows out there in terms of small performances from time to time we'll be rehearsing shows out there but i think every day and every week will be different i think the thing will be is you can come and retreat from the world of Las Vegas and Los Angeles, being so close to those places, but actually being in the desert and being in a place which is totally run by a circus company, which has got a particular view on how the day will go. So we're, we're dreaming up a range of activities you can do during that day, whether it's swimming in the pond or art or acrobatic sessions led by our artists. But that will be quite unique. So you can have something that is a, a retreat 
and you can get involved as much as you want. You might just want to go out there and sit by the stars and, and look at the sky. I don't know. It's beautiful out there. As for the shows we run in Las Vegas and Atlantic City, we have three shows in Las Vegas. Absinthe, which is our central show that we opened in 2011, is the big show in our production company. It's a 600-seat venue, and uh, it's a really a larger format of acrobatic and entertainment show. Atomic Saloon Show is a smaller version. It's only a 240-seat venue, and Atomic is all set in the Wild West, and it has a, a range of characters that are operating a saloon there, and the way they interact with each other is hysterical. And we actually uh, premiered that at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2019. And then we have OPM, which is set in outer space, which is at the Cosmopolitan, and it's next door to our restaurant in Las Vegas, Super Frico, which is an Italian-American psychedelic restaurant. And you can go to the restaurant and have dinner and then go to the show or vice versa. Again, acrobatic comedy in a 300-seat theatre, all set in outer space. I think the thing that people see in circus, the thing that people love in circus, is the fact that they're actually in a live environment. They're seeing it actually up close, up front, and they're watching a group of people who are absolutely the best in the world at what they do. And what they do may be blow bubbles. What they do may be throw another human 20 feet across a stage to their friend who catches them. What they do may be fall from the grid towards the stage at a rapid rate of knots or, or sway on a pole. It doesn't really matter. It's all very, very exciting. It's all absolutely amazing to watch. And ultimately, it's all very comedic. And so it really is impossible to not escape your day-to-day -day life when you go to see a Spiegel World Circus. You totally forget what's going on in the rest of the world, in the rest of Las Vegas, and the rest of your life. You can find out more about Spiegel World shows at spiegelworld.com. What's on Vera that you could, nay should, be watching this January? That's the question we're about to answer in our What's On segment with the help of guest critic Ellen E. Jones. Hello, Ellen. Hello, Johnny. How's it going? Uh, very well, thank you. Have you got some juicy recommends? I have. I had a really great time with this film, Dumb Money. Don't be insulted by the title. I won't. I shan't. I've heard about this. It sounds quite fun. Yeah, it's um, it's one of these... Do you remember the film The Big Short, the Adam McKay film, where they were kind yeah. of explaining these sort of quite complicated financial ideas to us dumb dummies at, at home or in the cinema? Yeah, with the famous Margot Robbie in a, in a bubble bath scene. Exactly. Um, can you remember yeah. what that scene was explaining to you? <laughs> uh, no, I, yeah, I possibly can't. not quite as effective then as, as we'd imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but this this is about it's it's based on a 2021 book that the Antisocial Network by Ben Mesrich. But it's actually about the GameStop short squeeze of January 2021. 
Do you remember that at all? Did that come across your wavelength? Yeah, you know what I'm talking it, about? it did. It was basically like, okay, this is going to be really reductive. But a whole bunch of internet nerds kind of got together and decided to like squeeze a certain stock and made a whole lot of money and then like important people at banks or whatever were unhappy with them. A, a very good summary, except for the fact okay. that you've characterised these incredibly heroic underdogs as internet nerds. And Dumb Money okay. is exactly the film to correct that mischaracterization. Okay, sorry, nerds. So it's got Paul Dano in it. He stars as the sort of king of the nerds, who's a guy called Keith Gill, who's like a sort of struggling family guy in living in the suburbs. His idea of a hobby is to spend time on stock market subreddits, doing YouTube live streams under the name Roaring Kitty with lots of cat emojis as well. And he's the one that kind of gets this short squeeze going and it's sort of one in the eye to the big honchos of high finance who are encapsulated in a character played by um, Seth Rogen, very much playing against type. He's usually the guy in the basement doing the YouTube live streams, but in this film, he's the kind of high finance guy who initially thinks all these guys are just sort of irritants to be batted away. The way they talked about is dumb money. Mm -hmm. But then as the course of the the story progresses, begins to take them very seriously indeed. Okay, excellent. And... um... What do you get out of this film? Is it, I mean... A lot of cat memes. A lot of cat memes. <laughs> do, you, do you sort of learn about finance or is it more of a... You do, you do learn about finance. It's, I mean, in a way, it's a classic underdog story, which is always enjoyable in the cinema. But you do learn about finance. The other kind of unexpected gift of it is it's one of the few good COVID-19 movies. Like, mm. I think usually cinema and art in general isn't, isn't very good and generally hasn't been very good so far in capturing that the sort of spirit of that time partly because i think we're all kind of still traumatized and we just want to forget what the pandemic was like yeah yeah because this all took place like in the in the kind of midst of, of all the mask wearing all the mm. you know lockdowns going on around the world and that's one of the reasons i think why it was such a big news story because it all happens you know on computer screens that were accessible to everybody but the way that the film kind of depicts that sort of low level anxiety that was going on in the background without doing it directly, I think it's really interesting. I think in, in a few years' time, we'll come to think of this as one of the great COVID-19 films. Mm, good, good. What's next, please, Ellen? My next film pick is a kind of example of the rude health that the British independent film scene is in at the moment. It's called Medusa Deluxe. It's a murder mystery set wonderfully in the world of competitive hairdressing. <laughs> yeah, great. There's a serial killer on the loose amid all the hairspray and backcombing. Is that backcombing or is it backstabbing? We don't know. So it's it's just really fun, really great idea. Loads of incredible hair and costumes and just sort of flamboyant camp over-the-top characters. And let me tell you, if getting some Tresemme hairspray in the eye, while not exactly fatal, it really, really stings. And this <laughs> film makes the most of, of that dramatic scene. Yeah, I can sort of well imagine all the crossovers between horror and hairdressing. Yeah. How they're sort of like hot hair irons involved at any point or anything like that of course everything you can imagine i mean yeah <laughs> yes okay of course, yeah, of course. yeah it stars um claire perkins who is probably best known for me standards but she kind of gets obsessed with with solving this mystery right okay yeah so it's a bit of a fringe production that's uh kind of busting into the the mainstream a very bit. good i see what you did there yeah fringe what well, i don't <laughs> know what fringe. you're talking about <laughs> 
Uh, oh yeah, that sounds that sounds really good. I am up for a kind of interesting indie British horror. Always, I think the Brits also we do that sort of film really well. You know, it's like a kind of tongue in cheek genre piece, right? We're quite good yeah. at that. It it doesn't take itself too seriously while still putting a huge amount of effort in, which I enjoy. Yes, great. Uh, what's your final film pick, please, Ellen? Final film pick is one for the action fans. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this. I'm going to do my best. Expendables? Expendables 4, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So for the benefit of people who might be confused by this, they swap the A in Expendables for a 4. Yes. Much in the way that the boy band 5 swapped the F yes. for the numeral 5. Yes. Yeah. Genius. I'd like to tell you that's the only thing that, that the film Expendables has in common with Five, but I'm afraid that's not the case. They both feature <laughs> a lot of men prancing about with incredible abs. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Um, so it's, I don't know, have you seen any of the earlier Expendables film? This, there's this series of like, the idea initially was that there were these like, bringing together all of the kind of 80s action heroes, like Arnold Schwarzenegger was in the first movie, Bruce Willis was in it. Dolph Lundgren was in it and then the sort of the guy that brought them all together was Sylvester Stallone and they were kind of coming mm. back for one last mission and it was this sort of idea that you know we've still got it we you know we're not old fogies don't dismiss us yet we can still give the young guys that run for their money but as happens when your cast is aging a few of the the main key players have, have sort of fallen away and are no longer in it um, but Sylvester Stallone is still very good value one of those actors that even when he's objectively terribly acting in a really bad wooden way is still very enjoyable to watch. Yeah. Jason Statham is his kind of second in command. The plot of the film is is about Sylvester Stallone kind of handing over the reins to Jason Statham. So there's some supposedly emotional friendship scenes that don't really work and yet still somehow do work. Mm. Plus loads of quite good action. I kind of like films where... I can basically kind of imagine it without having to watch it. <laughs> so when you, if you miss a bit, yeah, <laughs> yeah, when you do watch it, you know, it's like it feels very comforting. So yeah, yeah, it's okay. very comforting. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, big burly men, you know, getting into it. I like that. It's, <laughs> it, we've we've talked a lot about Sylvester Stallone on the on the pod this month already. Oh, good. And um, <laughs> he, what a what an incredible torso that man has. As he ages, his torso just seems to become yeah more and more. Ship-like in its <laughs> in its enormity. <laughs> yeah, he'll be he'll be carrying all the rest of the cast in in the for their final mission on his back, I imagine. On his epic prow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's enough film. So let's move on to TV, please. So my first pick is Aquafina. Is Nora from Queens? I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Aquafina. I am, and I think for like a brief period, she was everywhere. You know, she was in every film. And she always yeah, had these kind of like cameos where she would like pop up as a sort of chippy best friend type character. Yeah, she's got this like very distinctive raspy voice and this, this sort of New York accent. Yeah. And I think some people have wrongly dismissed her as basically that being the sum of what she has to offer. And if you have that impression of her, if you've like seen her as being the kind of funny best friend in Crazy Rich Asians or Ocean's 8, then I can see why you might think that. But this series is much more sensitive and nuanced and poignant than you'll be expecting if that's your impression of her unless you've seen her in the farewell the 2019 movie which is all of those things as well and she's excellent and in fact won a golden globe for mm. so she can absolutely do comedy she's very funny and there's loads of very funny people in the show just to give you a plot overview it's about a kind of young woman who ends up living she was raised by her grandmother and her dad 
with her cousin and then she kind of ends up living back with her grandmother and, and dad while going through a series of sort of dead-end jobs. And it's a bit absurdist and a bit surreal in places. And it's a real kind of feast of incredible East Asian comic talent, not least of which, certainly not least of which, perhaps the best of which, I love him so much, he's so funny, is Bowen Yang, who plays her cousin. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's on SNL, but like, he's just such a treat to watch. Every scene he's in is absolutely hilarious. And her grandmother is played by Laurie Tanchin, and she's fantastic as well. Okay, excellent. So kind of good offbeat sitcom with a heart yeah exactly with some poignant moments you won't be expecting yeah great okay what else in the world of tv um i'm recommending to everyone i know changing ends which has just uh, had its first series there's a kind of subgenre of sitcoms where comedians make a nostalgic program about their childhood so i don't know if you saw um liam williams's ladhood which is set in Leeds in the 90s. That was a pretty good one. Yeah. And one of the earlier ones, Chris Rock's Everybody Hates Chris. Yeah, yeah. Was good. And they, they will sort of do voice, the comedian will do voiceovers while they're reflecting on their own childhood. But this one is like that, but it's about Alan Carr's childhood in Northampton in the 1980s. That's Alan Carr of Chatty Man fame, mm-hmm. not the giving up smoking guru. Yeah. At the heart of this series, there's a really brilliant, brilliant performance from a child actor, Oliver Savile, as the kind of young Alan. He's got the, you know, the overbite and the glasses that we've come to love and recognise. He's just as camp and cheeky as the real car. And he has that, <laughs> most uncannily, he has that distinctive voice of an elderly grandmother, I think it's, it's called in the show, <laughs> yeah. which is even funnier when it's coming out of an 11-year-old. Great. And what, I mean, what's sort of interesting about Alan Carr's early life then? Well, I mean, he's basically an outsider from the start. His dad manages Northampton Town Football Club and he's very much not sporty. So he's got this kind of Mm. weird relationship with his dad. You know, he's the last one to be picked for all the teams at school, just, you know, kind of what you'd imagine. But what's lovely and, and a bit more unexpected is, yes, he's this outsider, but despite how relentlessly he's, you know, rejected by his dad, by his peers at school, told that he needs to be more sporty or less dramatic. This kid just has this unshakable core of self-belief and self-love. Mm. And he's really an example to us all, I think. And that, that's what makes the show both very funny and also very cheering to watch. I think it could be quite depressing to see a child in that situation. But because he just sort of never gives up on himself, you're cheering him along and also really kind of in awe and admiration of his, of his character. And of course, we know that, you know, just by being himself... Alan Carr has gone on to become, you know, this light entertainment legend and a national treasure. So there's a happy ending for any bullied child right there. Yeah, so it's it's a kind of um, positive message around just being yourself. Yeah, but in, uh, yeah. that makes it sound a bit cheesy, though, Johnny. It's not cheesy. It's like it's quite funny and sort of dry as well. It's very funny. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. What is your final TV pick, please, Alan? My final TV pick. You must be a fan of it. Everyone I know is a fan of this. Ghosts. Oh, yeah, I love Ghosts. Ghosts has sadly come to an end. Mm. It's, 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 this is the final series, series five. For anyone who hasn't yet had the pleasure, Ghosts is a sitcom. It's a classic flat share sitcom in a way. But this, the premise here is that Alison, played by Charlotte Ritchie, and her boyfriend, husband, Mike, played by Keel Smith Bino, have moved into her old family's country pile, Button House, and they are surrounded by ghosts of people who lived there in the past or her her kind of distant relatives and ancestors. Only she can see them, though Mike can't. So it's it's a really good setup for a sitcom that probably could have gone on forever. Sadly, it has, it's not gone on forever, though. But it's just really good, consistently funny, comforting situation comedy. Mm. 
And there's a bit of background, isn't there, which is that there's a, a kind of cult kids show in the UK called Horrible Histories. Exactly. And it's all of the cast from that. So it feels like they've basically picked what they think is the most hilarious historical figure they can imagine. Yes. And turned it into a ghost. I think ghosts um, actually started life as an idea for a sketch in Horrible Histories. That was, oh, I think it? that might be where it came from. And they, they did another show called Yonderland, which was also in, sort of in between Horrible Histories and Ghosts, which is also worth watching and really good. I mean, in fact, if there's one upside to the fact that Ghosts Ending is that this incredible team of Simon Farnaby, Matthew Bainton, that they can now go on to make another show, which will undoubtedly be excellent too. Yeah, a little bit of trivia for you. I was on a flight to Sicily with Matthew Bainton mm-hmm. quite recently. Did he make you laugh the whole way there? No, but he is. I mean, I often feel this about actors. When you see them in real life, you realise that they're very handsome, you know. You don't think of Matthew Bainton as being, like, handsome. But when you see him in real life, you're like, oh, he's a very handsome man. <laughs> short, though. They're very short actors in real life. He wasn't even sh- He wasn't even short. I've got nothing but good things to say. <laughs> so you're telling me he's incredibly funny... Very good yeah. looking and tall. And tall. And you know what he did? <laughs> Is he you know single? He did on the... That's the question, Johnny. <laughs> no, he was on holiday with his wife. And you know what he did on the plane? What? He read a book. Did he? I'm old. Was it history? Uh, or was it I, didn't... <laughs> I didn't actually see the name of the book. But I was also, oh, Matthew Bainton, look at you. Your beautiful Wonderful. family. Cultured. Reading... Cultured, reading your book. Um, so I think, you know, just to conclude this podcast <laughs> by saying Matthew Bainton... You know, so happy to have shared that moment with you in your life. Wish you all the best for the future. Yeah, Matthew Bainton, congratulations on all your lifestyle choices. They all seem excellent. (laughs) And they're probably going to work out for you. Well done. (laughs) Matthew Bainton, please come and accept this award from the the January edition. (laughs) (laughs) Greatest man on a flight to Sicily. (laughs) Okay, well, I think we'll leave it there, shall we, Ellen? I could talk about Matthew Bainton for hours, but... (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> feels like we already have. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much as ever for those picks. I'll see you very soon. Cheers. Bye bye. And that's all for this month from me, Johnny Ensel, who probably couldn't beat up the Pope, let alone Sylvester Stallone. The Viva Magazine podcast is made by Ink Studio for Virgin Atlantic and is produced by David Clack at Perfect Loop Productions. Thanks for joining us. Catch you next month. Thank you.